0: This is a Radio.com original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles.
2: And I'm Mike Simpson. You heard us last time talk about Eli Lilly and how the experimental antibody treatment didn't really work, stopped the trial after the federal researchers concluded the therapy didn't produce a marked improvement. But those findings apparently not stopping the government from buying 300,000 doses of the drug for $375 million. So if it doesn't work, why are they buying it? We'll try and sort this one out.
1: (laughs) The Dodgers finally win another World Series after 32 years. And we're talking about them now because one of their players tested positive for the virus right in the middle of Game 6. Then, then, then he goes on the field to celebrate. How good were Major League Baseball's testing protocols?
2: Flu season is here, which means more people will be getting sick and wondering, do I have COVID? That could mean more people getting COVID tests, but do we have enough?
1: Let's start with this Eli Lilly deal with the government over a drug that apparently, according to one study, works for some patients, but another study says doesn't work for others. Peter Loftus covers the pharmaceutical industry for The Wall Street Journal. Peter, walk us through this. There is a backstory story here,
3: and that is that um, Eli Lilly... Has been developing this antibody based drug. Um, and they're, they're studying it in a variety of ways to see if it works in different patient populations and, and for different uses. And so, in the last few weeks, they've announced, they've made a couple of announcements. Um, one study, they, they studied it in people who were recently diagnosed with COVID 19, who have mild to moderate disease, who, who are not yet in the hospital. And they found that it did provide a benefit, that fewer people who took their drug ended up in the hospital after getting it than people in a comparison group who did not receive their drug. And so that's the basis of what Eli Lilly is seeking um, government approval for, to to be able to um, provide that drug for that specific use. And so this supply agreement that was announced today is basically where the federal government is saying... We'll pay you this much money, $375 million, uh, for, for 300,000 doses uh, if it gets this approval. And, and at this point, it's looking like that approved use would be for, for people with mild to moderate disease. The, the other study that you referenced, which um, came to a head this week, was that they were, they were also studying it in people who were sicker with COVID-19 and already in the hospital. And that's where they ended. Um, it was actually federal researchers. They ended a study in that setting because they, they okay. basically found that it wasn't hear providing you. You hear me? any benefit to those patients. So, yes, it's 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 it seems like opposite things. Um, but it's it's you know there are there are multiple studies underway, and it and it turns out one was positive, one was negative, and we're still waiting on results of others.
1: So. If they use this this particular uh, therapeutic for people who are mild to moderate and just diagnosed, but not in the hospital, so where do you get the treatment? Do you go to your doctor's office? And it's not a pill that you take, right? Right. It's, it's, it's a
3: good question because it could be a logistical issue. It, it's given by IV infusion. And so you would probably have to get you know your doctor to to prescribe it, and then you would have to go into say a hospital outpatient clinic, or even you know there are these infusion-only clinics, and set up a time to go in for an hour or however long it takes to to get the uh, the infusion.
2: How early in the course should you get tested, get confirmed, start feeling something, and get this if you're going to try and do it the right, best way?
3: I think that these were um, patients that were were within days of being diagnosed, and um, you know, still had relatively mild symptoms. And so, I think, I I mean, I I can't give you a hard deadline, but I think it's, um, you know, it's within the first week or so of knowing that you have it and, and still feeling. know well enough to be home and not in the hospital that that would be the time when this might have a benefit
1: so under this government deal uh people with insurance their insurance wouldn't be billed it would all be free
3: what the company has said in a couple federal agencies um is that they the they they plan to make it available with no out-of-pocket cost for the drug itself and but that some providers, like a hospital, outpatient clinic, or an infusion clinic, they may charge a fee to administer the drug. Ah, so so, so so
1: the drug is the drug is free, but the administration is like ten thousand dollar bill.
3: Well, <laughs> I don't think it would be that much, but I, I can't. I don't know. Oh, well, you haven't
1: know. been in a hospital uh, in L.A. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah.
2: All right. Peter Loftus covers the pharmaceutical industry for the Wall Street Journal.
1: Dodgers third baseman, Justin Turner, is one of the team's key players. He vanished in the eighth inning of game six before the Dodgers won the World Series. Now, it seemed odd at the time, but it turned out the team found out he had a positive COVID test. But that didn't stop him from celebrating on the field with his team even taking off his mask.
2: Cue the criticism for not isolating. Cue the questions. What was going on with the testing protocols? Dr. Eric Fagelding, epidemiologist, senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. So, doctor, a lot about this doesn't sound great.
0: Well, I think, first of all, why didn't he get a definitive result before he started playing? Like, supposedly, his second inning um, inconclusive test was collected the day before, but Why didn't they get the results before the game began? That's kind of like a failure on this team or on the league's part. And secondly, um, you know, they rapidly tested the new sample, but, uh, you know, eighth inning is a little bit uh, too late. And third of all, rumor is that, well, not just rumor, the news footage clearly shows he came back on the field. He refused to isolate. And Major League Baseball admonished him and scolded him for we're doing that. So altogether, a series of failures from many different um, perspectives.
2: So yeah, I guess this is going to be like a multi-part to figure out what went wrong, because you're absolutely right. That was one of the first questions being asked was, wow, this seems late. We're supposed to know before the games, or at least that's what we thought (laughs) we were going to know. Um, Right. How do you think... I guess this could happen any number of ways, but they were only supposed to go from the hotel to the stadium and back. And despite some early problems, MLB was doing a really good job with their bubble, right?
0: Yeah, they had like 54 consecutive days without any players testing positive. There was like a few staff, you know, ancillary people, but overall they seemed to be doing well, but um, you know, you should realize that nothing's, uh, as you clearly know from the White House, nothing's foolproof. You know, the White House uses testing. And once you cleared the testing, you went without masks inside. And we know that that's dangerous because there's asymptomatic um, carriers and transmission that sometimes a test can miss. Um, so I, I, it's kind of like White House. They play the roulette. and But if you play long enough, you will eventually lose. And Major League Baseball here clearly shows their the testing was late. They previously got away with it when it was negative. But when it was positive, it can easily blow up in your face.
1: I was—I mean, this isn't certainly, not for me anyway, a medical diagnosis. But is it just that you can always count on people doing stupid things?
0: Yeah. Like, I think we have to just assume that, like, nothing nothing's perfect. Even tests are not perfect. Mask wearing people are not perfectly adherent there's just so many things. This is why you have to take, you have to assume everyone's, just like condom use, everyone screws this to some degree, screws it up, right? There's always a fraction of the population that's going to screw it using it up. And so you have to take the multi-layer approach, not just test, not just mask, not just distancing, but also quarantining, you know, isolating when you test positive and, you know, taking the precautionary principle against such a Crazy, crazy virus.
1: So if anyone on that team becomes pregnant, we're we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Aaron. Well, hopefully not. But my point <laughs> is,
0: you know, condoms. Ninety-eight condoms are ninety-eight percent effective. It's always that two percent. But the problem with an infectious disease is that two percent is what g- is going to keep the virus spreading. You know, equivalent in in terms of your, uh, you know, I- imperfect testing and and mask and distancing.
2: Dr. Eric Fegelding, epidemiologist, among the first to sound the alarm on COVID back in January. You know, we're like eight months into this. That was the first, you know, first time for everything.
1: Coming up after this short break, will we have enough COVID tests this winter? The possibility of getting the flu and COVID at the same time, that could be a disaster. The symptoms for the two are very similar, and that could have a lot of people getting a COVID test to find out, if they've got COVID.
2: Or if they've got the flu. Hmm. I guess you don't want either, but I guess I'll go with the flu if I have to choose. Testing availability has improved since the early days of the pandemic, but are we where we need to be if more people are going out getting tests? And how reliable are the tests that we have? Dr. Abby Rudolph, infectious disease, social epidemiologist at Temple University, and she talks to KYW's Charlotte Reese about testing and about what to expect.
4: There's a few different ways that we would employ testing especially for a virus that has such a global scale so in the beginning when we had testing shortages we were definitely only testing people that were symptomatic and positive as we move forward to a point where we're able to control the virus and we want to be sure that if people are mixing with other people more frequently we definitely want to have procedures in place where you know, especially at college universities, any sort of congregate setting where a lot of people are in close proximity to each other. In addition to testing people that are symptomatic, we also wanna be able to sort of frequently, just like they're doing actually with the football teams and the baseball teams, and we wanna basically be able to frequently screen people who may not be symptomatic and sort of pull them out so that they can isolate. So there's sort of two ways that we're using testing. And I think that sort of, you know, informs which type of test might be the best test for that population. So if we're dealing with somebody that has a a symptomatic case and they go to their doctor, we probably want to use the test that is most sensitive. The problem was that these tests were having, you know, 7-day, 10-day turnarounds. And so by the time people were finding out that they were positive, we weren't getting information on who their contacts were in order to identify those people and tell them that they might need to quarantine. So by the time we would have been able to get to that step, their contacts might have already been affected. And in fact, they might have already spread the disease to others. And so in terms of contact tracing, we're like two to three steps behind the game. The other issue is that you know a lot of people don't have jobs where they can just wait the 10 days in isolation and wait for their results to come back so if people are unable to basically isolate themselves and reduce the probability of transmitting to others in that time period then we definitely need to have results as quick as possible because you know what i had sort of learned from talking to other people is that they had gotten a test And then they went back to work and they waited for the five days until they got the results. And so that's a really, really bad problem because during that time period, disease can spread really rapidly. So I would say, you know, if you're able to isolate and quarantine after you get the results, then we want to use the test that's most sensitive. So, you know, if your sensitivity is, you know, if you actually have the disease, the probability that the test is going to correctly diagnose it. So out of 100 people that have disease, if it's 97% sensitive, that means that 3 of those people will not be positive and 97% will. So we'll have three false negatives and 97 correct positives. So we really want that up, you know, closer to 99 or 100, but it's it's that trade-off that if we aren't able to do the contact tracing, then it kind of nullifies the effect. On the flip side, if we're talking about the screening, so like, you know, symptomatic testing is one thing, but then there's also screening to try to control outbreaks before they happen because we know that there's about a five-day period of incubation and in a couple days before you develop symptoms, you're infectious. So in populations like college campuses and in the sporting events where people have like real close contact and maybe not wearing masks, then we also want to do routinely screen the population. So with that, we want to basically test everybody that isn't symptomatic with a quick test, basically rule out who doesn't have disease and rule out those that might be cases. For that, we might want to use a quicker test because they don't actually have symptoms. So in that way, we basically identify the people that don't yet have symptoms, but are potentially contagious and quickly isolate them and do contact tracings to sort of thwart a little outbreak.
5: Right. And when you say screen the population, and as you said, you know, a lot of jobs need test results quickly. And these rapid tests now, I mean, they can come back in two hours versus another test that takes three to five days as you're talking about. So is there really a difference between the two? Can you maybe break that down a little bit more? Because you've mentioned false positives. So is that for Mm -hmm. both of the tests or is one maybe more reliable than the other?
4: So for the diagnostic tests, there's two things that they look for. Some of them test for the genetic material. So if you've heard about RT-PCR tests, they're actually trying to detect the virus. And so those are molecular tests. Those tend to be more accurate than the antigen tests. So the antigen tests have come out more recently than the PCR, so the initial ones were all the genetic tests. The antigen tests look for proteins, and the proteins are easiest to detect in the initial few days of infection when the viral load is the highest, and they taper off a little bit afterwards. So the rapid tests tend to be more on the antigen side, although there are now also molecular tests that are coming about. So I was saying that the molecular tests tend to be more accurate than the antigen tests. The antigen tests are more likely to be rapid tests. So technically, you know, the longer wait may be more accurate, but there's molecular tests that are being developed now that are rapid as well. So I think as we advance in the technology, we'll get to a point where we we do have quicker tests that are using the genetic material rather than the, the antigens. Mm-hmm.
5: And that makes sense. I mean, we're seven months deep into this pandemic. What's your opinion on how we're doing with testing or maybe why haven't we seen something like a rapid testing rolled out on a
4: larger scale than what we're doing now? Well, I mean, one of the, I mean, we, I haven't seen this happen in the past, but the emergency use authorizations for testing that did allow initially there were, you know, some tests that got approved just because we had inadequate supply of testing. So I I would say that some of the regulations to allow increased testing were maybe not as good as they could have been because we were in an emergency situation and we're really struggling. But I, I think that as we, you know, move further and we're able to control it more, that we'll sort of move towards the higher standard of care rather than just filling the gaps with whatever we can.
1: Remember when everyone was hoarding toilet paper and we were trying to figure out why? I remember that.
2: We'll tell our grandchildren, you know, one day in 2020, I bought seven rolls. <laughs> you won't believe this,
1: grandson, but there, there was no toilet paper. And
2: there was no sanitizer.
1: <laughs> well, we never did actually find out what happened. It wasn't just toilet paper that was being hoarded. It was hand sanitizer, cleaning wipes, even flour. Well, the hoarding is back. Centricity tracks online activity like e commerce, and it finds that stockpiling is starting up again. Demand for items like baking goods spiked 3,400% from a year earlier at this time. General Mills, which makes Cheerios and other cereal, I haven't said that in so many years Cheerios. So cheerful. You know there's a guy out there
2: listening to this, though, who's like, joke's on you because I've got 75 boxes (laughs) of Honey Nut Cheerios from the last (laughs) go-around.
1: Oh, you made me hungry. Honey Nut Cheerios. Well, General Mills, as I said, makes Cheerios and other cereal. It is adding more production lines. Oh, good. Supermarkets are working to keep their shelves fully stocked because a country without Cheerios is just not a country at all.
2: And we will be here with episodes to get you through it. Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.